Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with me, Bree. Hi. And <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you waited for yourself to acknowledge yourself. <laughs> and uh, Scott, my dad. <laughs> We've been keeping our actual relationship on the down low. We might as well keep that up. Yeah, no. More also, of a... can you clean your room later? It's getting kind of bad. Uh, yeah, totally. Could you stop like molesting me at night? <laughs> no, uh, Depends I'm if kidding. You clean your room or not? <laughs> it's a big book, so Scott, do your best. Uh, fill us in and tell us what we're going to be talking about. Well, I mean, I guess we should be a little more upfront about our format, what we're doing with our book selection. We're getting in the groove. We've been doing a new kind of routine, which is Bree chooses, I choose. And then we do one that has kind of a consensus. Here's one we should do. Here's a representative book of sci-fi or fantasy when people talk about it. But you just outed me that, like, I picked City of Bones for my, <laughs> my choice. I think those are all obvious. People can go back through blind and, <laughs> and figure out what came from what. But anyway, so yeah, that's what, that's what we're on, right? Yeah. Next pick's mine. And this was, this was consensus. This was the world telling us to read it. Yeah, this was super famous book, etc. You've heard of it, I'm sure. Super famous podcast. <laughs> okay. Super Tell famous us about host. the book. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we read a little old book called American Gods, which is about a lot of things. And only one of which is a goddess escort who sex devours men uh, whole through her vagina. The book's by Neil Gaiman, a British man whose image graces the whole of the backside of our book. <laughs> I know uh, we've retired Cringe Factor for the time being, but allow me to momentarily bring it back for just this intro. Uh, <laughs> I can say that this would have rated fairly high, I think. Really? Just the road with the lightning bolt? Well, no, just on account of what's on the back of it, oh. which is a black and white portrait of Mr. Gaiman clad in a three-sizes-too-big leather jacket, <laughs> forever staring out at the world. It was a tough jacket. 2001 was a different time. That's the thing. I don't, I don't think this was like the jacket of 2001. It, it wasn't. <laughs> There's two separate thoughts. It was a different time, and that's a weird jacket. Okay, yeah, so that's our author. Should I have said English, do you think? I'm not sure what he prefers. Britishman, Englishman, and I'm also not sure where he stands on the whole devolution thing. Brie, can you look up his opinion on the Scottish independence <laughs> referendum? Whatever, I'm being reductive. Identity's not a monolith. His Britishness and Englishness probably sit very comfortably side by side, in much the same way that the deities of folklore and mythology are simultaneously embodied and extracorporeal. That's called a segue, folks. They're more than just America's premier form of transportation. They're also a vital tool in the newscaster... Yeah, check like segue joke off of our our show list this is the hottest podcast of 2006 <laughs> yeah they're also a vital tool in the newscaster's bag of tricks alongside the gotcha question and a nail file to escape from newscaster prison <laughs> that dreaded pain palace run by guards who make the nkvd look like the easter bunny oh the easter bunny she's in our book too that's another segue and yes i did say she for all you misogynist thought police out there. Rabbits can be women. <laughs> Your stance makes me sick. And it makes no sense, too. There have to be women bunnies, or else the species would die out. Two male rabbits cannot have a baby. 
We have to do the book. We have to talk about it. Oh, it's the PC Patrol's turn now. Listen, no one's saying that two committed male rabbits who love each other can't raise a perfectly fine baby rabbit. In fact, study after study has shown that the children of same-sex rabbit pairings are actually much more well-adjusted, and they perform just as well at hopping school as any kid raised by cis rabbits. The hopping school joke one, though. <laughs> so like I said, this week we read American Gods. The book has some renown. NPR compiled a crowdsourced list of the 100 best SFF books five years ago, and this came in 10th, which is pretty impressive considering the book was barely a decade old at that point. It came out in June 2001, surprisingly close to September 11th, or as I like to call it, America's 9-11. As far as I can tell, Gaiman has yet to either confirm or deny his involvement in these events. <laughs> We're still waiting. It's not untrue. Anyway, 10th all-time, though, it's kind of impressive. What can account for that ranking? I hope you might be able to give us some insight on that point as we go through this book, Bree. I hope you can, too. Oh, I will. Oh, actually, I've got nothing. Except some pretty convincing anecdotal evidence pointing to a midnight rendezvous between Gaiman and a necromancer and some rumors of child sacrifice. But it wouldn't be the first time something like that happened. Who can forget George Eliot? That's even his real name. His pact with the succubus hordes for the rights to the mill on the floss. What's going on in this thicket of pages? We primarily follow around a guy named Shadow. He's in prison when we start the book, and in Reykjavik when it ends. You like Shadow? I love Shadow. I have to talk about Shadow. <laughs> I don't know. Things happen in between those. Sidebar. Brief. Quick survival question. It's your first day of prison. A women's prison? Crazy future world. Do I have world. nail polish to trade or no? No. No. Okay. no, no. It's like, is, are, is nail polish like cigarettes in male prison? Anyway, first day of prison. What do you do? Just me? We all know. What do you do? It's your first day of prison. Oh, no, yeah. You beat up the biggest guy there. Or right. the biggest girl there. You go up to the biggest girl and you beat her up. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You're going to do well in prison. Okay. I would go up to the biggest girl and like thinking of myself as a real sexual prize, you know, mm. that I would just go up to her and be like, you can like do stuff to me. I won't look. Much like your relationship with dad. <laughs> Let's keep up this incest thing. <laughs> the book's conceit, a la Mythago Wood, Gods Are Real, or the predominant cultural hive mind construction of a god or myth creature or whatever is made real anew in whatever place one takes up residence. Another quick question. Why do these gods respect otherwise arbitrary geopolitical boundaries? And Odin exists in America, but he also exists in, like, Norse religious places, too. Is there a different Odin in Canada? Yes, there are many different Odins. And this is already... I'm already getting a little defensive and a little upset because I can already tell where you're going with this. And this is about the fact, and this is, I think you've evinced this on the show, I, but I'm not sure. I love using events. I feel like you just have a hard time with, I'm not saying that this is a lyrical book, but with like lyricism or with something that is like what? suggestive or something that tells you emotionally something true or interesting, but isn't going to hammer it out. Like you already coming down on like how many Odins are there. Like get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. It just frustrates me because... Spoiler alert podcast. I really liked this book. Mm. And like Can we can we hold that off for a couple of minutes? <laughs> yeah, just don't want two more to... minutes. Right. And I can just tell how you're gonna be with it. And I feel sort of powerless, like I'm watching a giant wave come toward me. Mm. I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. It was a little too lyrical. Yeah, it's pretty good. Might... <laughs> <laughs> Actually it was pretty lyrical. I was thinking of Deep Impact when I said it. You remember when she watches the giant wave? And then she runs away from it? You've seen Deep Impact, you're human. No, I need to come back at this. 
slander. It, okay, there's a difference between lyricism and like amorphous suggestibility. You can be lyrical and very precise. Of course, but at the same time, it's possible for something to be emotionally resonant and make sort of a certain psychological sense, even if it's a little counterintuitive, and if you actually try to hammer out the details and articulate everything about it, it probably wouldn't flesh out perfectly. And I feel like you resist that. That's different than lyricism, is all I'm saying. I fucking... My preamble to saying the lyricism thing was I understand it's not a highly lyrical book, but we've talked about other stuff before, and you have this problem in poems, too. Like, there will be a great poem that's totally moving and weirdly shattering, and then you'll be like, me. I don't get it. <laughs> or you'll be like, oh, it was just a fucking list of images. It wasn't telling me anything. And I like narrative poems, too, but, like, I can also sort of piece together a narrative in some weird, empty, silent space inside me. That's <laughs> good. But again... <laughs> No, 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 again, I, I want to be able to understand what you're saying, but then you say things like empty, silent space inside me, and it's just, <laughs> it's a little too beautiful for me to grab onto. What's it like to have no interiority? <laughs> I don't know. Please try to minimize the metaphor. You need on. to finish this. we got to go on. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about that more, because I think at, at the heart of what you're saying is kind of true. At the heart of what I'm saying? Can you understand what you just said? What was that Natalie Portman movie? Where she got Closer? stranded at a Walmart. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I don't even care that you didn't like this book as much as you should. Where the Heart Is. There it is. I knew there was a heart in there somewhere. We, should, we just have to do a show about Where the Heart Is. I think that was based on Natalie Portman's real life. <laughs> Nat Natalie Portman wouldn't be a bad Sam, by the way, when we cast it later. I was just about to say, I'm sure you're going to throw Natalie Portman in your cast now that we said her. I mean, she's Sam. She's not Sam. She's Sam Crow. I mean, we saw the brouhaha that erupted over the Aloha treatment, where they had their quarter Hawaiian girl played by non-quarter Hawaiian girl. Yeah, I didn't see that brouhaha. You didn't see the brouhaha or you didn't see Aloha? I didn't see Aloha. Were you aware of the Aloha brouhaha? We have to keep going. <laughs> I want to sing a song around a campfire about that Aloha brouhaha no. kumbaya. I guess I'm saying, and this is all right, whatever, we're just getting into it, but like, I think the book asks really big questions, grand, huge stuff. And I think that you, you would not say it answered them, and I think it did answer them, but I can't articulate it. So I'm so frustrated this because... This is bad. Okay, you need, you're going from, I kind of like this, I want to defend it, to saying that it's asking and answering grand existential questions. I didn't say existential. And I'm just saying that's bad. I'm just saying you need to be aware that that kind of... Initial positioning will make you get really mad at me. <laughs> a book asking big questions doesn't mean that it's like a big book. I'm just saying the book explicitly does ask big questions, obviously. No, no, like, no. what is the nature of belief? What is America? I mean, those are like things going on in the book. Well, we can't cold, deny that. Well, Cold Magic asked big questions, too. <laughs> no, you, you, you squared that circle. You said it answered the big questions. It did answer it's them. It, it did answer them. Not answered them like perfect. This isn't my favorite fucking book ever, but like... I just feel like it was so ambitious, and I feel like it was largely so successful. When you, and you're like, um, I guess you'd call it like congregation meet to praise this book. <laughs> Do you have like a certain chant that you start with? Oh my or, God. Are you high priest? How good yes. was, was his chant on the tree, by the way, during his vision quest? We can talk about what happened with my reading towards the end of the tree. Okay. We'll Do you have anything that. else to say about what actually happened in Fuck the book yeah. for our listeners? I got a shit ton right. to say about this. So the premise we have there is that America is a crowded mishmash of the accumulated gods and goddesses of all the various peoples and cultures that have over time come to settle or been made to settle on our 
Grand Shores. They're asking grand questions, too. I'll fucking kill you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. All right, all right. I'm sorry. As long as they're remembered, these gods exist. Although the more dominant their contemporary presence, the stronger the deity. And these gods, characterization-wise, they act basically like those of, or those in the non-Abrahamic uh, pantheon. Meaning they have human desires, foibles, hang-ups, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, Shadow, yeah, he started out in the prison. He gets out. His wife's dead. She dies. He's contracted out to Odin and embarks on a mysterious road-tripping adventure with him to round up as many of the old gods as they can to wage a final desperate battle against their obsolescence. You should mention it, that Odin's name is Wednesday in the book. We're going to refer to him as Wednesday at time. Odin slash Wednesday is trying to gather him up to fight against the, quote, new gods, which are hilariously exactly what you'd think they'd be. The internet, celebrities... <laughs> The stock market, credit cards, and quote-unquote media. Your favorite god. Finally, I thought that's a very commentary-ish thing to make your new gods. But none of the old gods were like broadsheet or boolean, <laughs> cowrie shells, or duchesses, or yeah. triremes, right? It's like, uh, stuff happens, Shadow learns things about himself, and about love, and about quote-unquote capital A. America. You know what? Capitalize the whole thing. Capital A, capital M. Well, when is America lowercase? That's a great question. That's why I had to go back and capitalize the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm basically missing everything that's happened that happens in the book. Should we fill in any of those gaps quick? What are important ones before we embark on our discussion? One, his wife's dead. And he accidentally, with a coin that he got from one of the gods, brings her back to life. Shadow brings his, his But she's wife. still dead. She's just animate. Yes. She's rotting. Yes, her name's Laura. Um, her name's Laura. He meets a lot of different gods. He spends a while in a town called Lakeside that had something mysterious going on it. He doesn't know who his father is. Wink, wink, hello. It's Jace. <laughs> <laughs> There's American gods. Bree, first question. I mean, I think I have a sense of what your feelings are. Okay, go back to that NPR. I'm frustrated list. with myself, first of all. This is a super popular book, and I really liked it. And so Why I'm just like... That's great. Yeah, but like, you know, I'm just saying... You know saying, what's super popular and I like? What? Sex. <laughs> <laughs> sex is so popular. Sex was number four on the best sci-fi books of the last century. <laughs> My first Do you think question. sex would be in the top ten best things about life? Best things about life. Let's go through it. Best things about being alive. All right. Eating is a big one. Eating, massages, <laughs> new dresses, sex, having shelter during a storm, falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only one I agree with so far is new dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think those are the best things. Those are great. No, I'll, I'll stick esteem, with it. Feeling esteem from your from people that you like? Like a, like a good steam bath. Like a great steam bath, yeah, yeah. I'm with that. Speaking of, what are those things called? The Indian things. Smoke. Smoke signals? <laughs> Fuck no. Smoke signals. Number... No, the fucking the things. I've done one where you, just so you everyone breathe in knows the hut too. and everything gets smoky. Just so you know, everyone, Bree's wearing a headdress for some reason. <laughs> it's really, fucking headdress. I, mean, I don't want to say anything, but it's really inappropriate. Yeah, it's fine. Take off your bendy. <laughs> you, so you've done one of these. You, I've done one of these. So there's, you know, not to, I don't know how else to say it, a teepee. <laughs> no. You go inside a teepee. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm troubled when I think about that attached to Native American genocide. The fact that I've done what? a smoke lodge. That's what it's called. Jesus smoke. fuck. Thank God. 
the fact that I've done one, because, like, it is kind of gross. At the same time, there is something to, like, deprivation theories of, like, religious practice, practices. And, mm -hmm. like, if you deprive yourself of food and then get in an extreme physical circumstance, you will have a weird mental reaction that's different than other things you experience. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's real. That's more just, like, biology, but... Right. So my question, thinking of that NPR list, we'll get in, I'm sure this will segue. Is NPR again. one of the gods? I'm sure this will segue into your own feelings, but thinking of other people, what, why is this number 10? Against some, some pretty stiff competition, all right? You got your Lord of the Rings. You got your Hobbits. You got your Lord of the Rings 2. <laughs> you got your Lord of the Rings 3s. Okay, um, I think that... All right, I already said that fucking horrible thing about, like, this being, like, a big book, asking big questions. But it's true. Like, this is a book about, um, like, two men who go on a road trip across America. And they do that to drum up support for a big battle. And the battle is between the old and the new and the past and the present. In that battle, they're trying to suss out what is America, how was America made, and what does that mean for people living in America. So, considering mm -hmm. that that is... I would say, without argument, what the book is doing. That's the plot of the book. If it succeeds in that and all, then I understand why it would be many people's top ten material. At the same time, I could say other things for why it's top ten. Has a really, like, contemporary take on, on magic and religion. I mean, you mentioned the Mythico Wood thing in your intro. Yeah, this is basically the same thing as Mythico Wood, saying, like, it's, it's a psychologizing of religion, you know, to say that we make our gods. So if you study our gods, they actually say more about us than they do about them because we made them. And if I think about it, City of Stairs had the same thinking too. So I maybe feel like this is just like, has is becoming or has become like a trope in fantasy as to like one explanation of magic. So I think the fact that there is something sort of like present and contemporary, whatever, last 50 years about where fantasy is and where like fantasy thinkers are, I feel like maybe... That's another reason it became famous. It also a lot more like cultural and ethnic diversity than a lot of the high fantasy and epic fantasy that I'm sure is on a list like that. And at the same time, all middle, all middle America wants from its fantasy books is just a strong <laughs> point of view character of color. Okay, but at the same time, uh, superseding all that, uh, it top ten probably because it was a fucking delight. Because mm, it was go. a great time. Good, and I all loved right. it. Let's start with Shadow. Let's start with Shadow. One, he fell in the hole near the railroad tracks. I thought there was no way he's getting up. You cannot say another homeward bound joke. <laughs> I think we do them all the time. I mean, I think this might be a spot where we have some initial disagreement. Did you like Shadow? You know, I can be a bit of an essentialist when it comes to gender. And even if it is, like, generalizations can be made about women because of the way they've been socialized, I get all that, whatever. I still make generalizations about women and men a lot. I look at a male narrator and protagonist with like I have a troubled relationship face. with him. I know it is disgusting. It's probably because also like maybe it's like attraction repulsion. Maybe I'm like just like really attracted to men. All right, I love where this is going. <laughs> let's go. Let's dig into that. So I don't really like a lot of male narrators, and I thought Shadow was so winning. I thought he was a lovely person, and I loved him being the conduit through which I was learning about this world as he learned about it. So I guess before I get into the things I really liked about him, what didn't work for you about him? Because I can tell from your face that it didn't work. <laughs> well, it's just because I put a sign on my face that says I didn't like Shadow. <laughs> I mean, it's less that like individual things didn't work than that I thought 
he was a nothing. He was a blob without direction. And I know you're going to say it's about grief, but he made no impression on me. This was just a ball of gray matter. I love what you're saying. Interacting with Because it just supports why I like him so much, okay? So he's the protagonist, and we see things through him. I agree that there is something sort of amorphous about him. He's not as characterized as the other characters. But I also think that that has like a, a psychological truth to it. Like he's the main character. I don't see myself the way you see me. You know, like I see myself as being like many different things and always changing and shifting. And I see you as just being like a really fucked up misogynist. (laughs) But he does demonstrate this kind of like elasticity in his characterization that I feel like is true to being in yourself in the first person, obviously. Also, I think that a lot of what's going on in this book thematically is about contradictions. And I think whatever like emotional truth is at the center of this book's book is like hinging on a paradox that I can't totally define. And I think that he is sort of like made of contradictions in a way, you know, like he behaves very differently in different scenes. And I also love, and I'm surprised that you didn't, the running thing throughout the book of when he notices and is annoyed with himself that he's mirroring, mirroring the speech patterns of whoever he's talking to. Like, that was such a a human thing to do that he kept noticing he was doing. Beyond that, I feel like he is this, like, confident, but he's really unassuming. And he, like, both, like, doesn't take up any space in the room, but at the same time has a lot of presence. Like, I feel like there are just a lot of contradictory things about him, which I feel like gets to the space where, like, he's half God, half human, obviously, by the end of the book. So he actually becomes a liminal space in itself. And that's a space of, like, it's value neutral, but there's great spiritual power there. And I feel like that's part of the book's whole message beyond that. I mean, if only every book could have as generous a reader as you. I mean, that's some post hoc deep thinking. But about do you think that's the, wrong? In the characterization in the book, it's on the edges to such a degree that it's malleable enough that you can make him be anything. And that's kind of what you're doing. You're making him, in his kind of ineffectualness, what you think works in the, in the thematic concerns of the book. Right, so that's just me taking something different from him because you did say that you feel like he's a big gray ball of nothing. That being said, we're with him throughout the entire 600 pages or whatever. Unfortunately, yes. So like the fact that you didn't read into that what you should have isn't <laughs> well, really my problem. Well, the contradiction thing, I mean, I think maybe you're getting something with the taking on the speech patterns, but the contradiction thing, I just don't. So this might be a, a central disagreement with us. I think you want to take aspects of this book and expand it and, and some of like the more abstract Theoretical things are a meta-commentary on other things, or with the genre itself, but then also like the big question. I mean, the part. scope of the book is huge. Well, the scope, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But at the same time, what I think, it doesn't work when you go down to the minute level, because I think this is actually a really concretely focused book. There's not a ton of wiggle room to make it subjective and universal, and I think a lot of these things are supposed to exist in a very concrete way. So like, let's take Shadow. Like, we find out conclusively by the end of the book that he's Odin's, he's Odin's son, right? Mm-hmm. Why are you he, calling him Odin? He's Wednesday in the book. I just feel like this isn't, when I think Odin, I think, like, Norse mythology. And I think Wednesday. This was a character named Wednesday. What I'm saying is that there are literally 87 dream sequences in this book. Every time Shadow falls asleep, without fail, we get a snippet of his dream. And these are dreams with huge import and... Whatever. We can talk about those later. Let's table that because 
in those we get different images and senses of what this is, what he is, and his relationship to the world. And at the end, we've learned that he's Wednesday's son. He's Odin's son. But a lot of the dreams are about things that aren't related to Norse mythology. There's one point where he has a dream about being a five-year-old boy who's ritually slaughtered at some point. And he's seeing through that boy's vision to where you think that, oh yes, this is like longer primeval memory that he has of a past life or a longer life or something. But then you learn at the end of the book that that's the backstory of a different person. Yeah, of a different dude. Um, who's not him. Like, there's no reason he should have had that memory in his head. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that you're going to get hung up on, like, these kind of details. For the most part, the book did a great fucking job with exposition and with not overtelling but telling enough just so that we knew. As for that specific dream, like, I don't need that explained, why he woke up and was remembering Hinselman's childhood. Like, whatever. He's He all of a sudden, like, got into this huge god game and crazy mystical shit is happening. At the same time... I think it's it's hinted that he has some type of like Native American spirituality, like that he might be. Everyone everyone keeps asking him if he's Native American, right? But that guy wasn't Native American. Who? Hinselman. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I'm so... saying like that doesn't matter. Like for you to get hung up on that point, considering how much was packed into this book and how much those like those dream sequences, and I would say all of the dream sequences, which I was actually into. The pinnacle of that was his vision quest in the end. On, on the tree. On the tree. He was on the tree I mean, just makes... like Odin for days with a vision quest. and But he'd had 40 pages of dreams before then. So you can't say that's the culmination when like... Or you can't say that's the culmination, but you can't say those other things didn't matter. I think that's you trying to kind of have your cake and eat it too. I think that's you not giving the book enough credit. You can't say you're not allowing for enough suggestiveness. and like, But at the same time deciding where that matters. I'm just saying I have a different spot than you do on that line between concrete details that impact the story and a non-linear, non-narrative kind of thing, contradictory, counterintuitive way in which the characters operate. Sure. You found some moments when maybe like the what happens isn't totally justified in a reasonable way by the narrative and whatever. I think the book has a lot of built-in excuses for that. But back to the dream sequences in general, I actually thought considering what the book is about and what it was dealing with, the dreams were important places. I felt like I was being given insight in the dreams and they weren't just useless. And I felt like the whole thing built up to this real sense of impending doom that I had throughout the whole book and that was important for the book. And the vision quest, which I would call the culmination of the dreams because he saw many of the same figures in the vision quest that he saw previously on his dreams. I mean, to make a vision quest over a lot of pages and have it not be convoluted or dull or cloying and have it actually be like interesting and propulsive and me totally understand what was happening the whole time, I think is like a feat. It is. It would be, it would just be hard to do. Well, here's maybe then where I'm coming across like I didn't like this book. And it's maybe because I'm a little taken aback by your complete advocacy. I thought we'd maybe have a talk like, oh, this is fun. Like, and I had a lot of points about like things I liked, like little things. In my head, this read very much like a book that is pretty good at the things that the other books we've been reading have been trying to do. Not like a transcendent book that's doing, that's asking and answering big questions. So a lot of my points are like, that was a pretty good line there, or like, oh, that was a funny detail. So 
it wasn't so much that my thought about his initial dream sequences clash with his actual character that we find out at the end. That wasn't like a point of everything crumbles and the book doesn't work for me. That was just a thought I I had that was okay. interesting. You're right. I'm being too combative. No, I wasn't saying you're combative. I'm saying maybe that's why it's seeming like I'm trying to say like, this is a reason the book's bad mm-hmm. when it's just a thing. I was just really impressed by this book. Like, I didn't start out that way. Nothing about this plot is something I'm interested in. Like, right. Men on a road trip, and I don't like... I think we've talked about this. You don't either. Like, I don't like picaresque stuff about, Oof. like, stopping in this town, stopping in this town. I just loved being in it. I read it every night over the course of a couple of weeks, and it was, I thought, like, a great space to be in. Well, I mean, I will say this. I read this with as much necessary haste in order to record this as I did City Bones. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, I read this in five days of, like, 100-page chunks. The beginning of none of those sessions was, like, dreadful. Whereas, like, City of Bones, I had to put off for a month because I didn't want to go back to it. And I read it close. And I read, we began a lot lot of tweets and a lot of emails about Scott skimming some of these things. But (laughs) trust me, guys, um, I read this one. With that, though, I, in a really strange way, I mean, it's a 500, it's a 600-page book. I read the first 400 really closely. It's not a good sign, I think, for a book in that I cared so little about the climax that the skimming I did do was during the climax and by the climax, do you mean the battle between the gods, or do you mean his time on the tree? Well, that's another problem, in that the climax that the book makes us think is the climax, which is everything it's building to, or the battle between the gods, isn't the climax. That ends, and then you have 50 pages, where he goes back to this little small town and like solves a murder mystery. Okay, I do think, I kind of thought one of the problems with it, I agree, him finishing up the little murder mystery thing, which, by the way, like, who didn't know that Hinselman was, like, killing those kids? Right. It felt tacked on at the end. Like, I was, it almost felt like he finished it, and it was like, oh, good book. And it was like, shit, I left that whole lakeside part. The lakeside part also felt set up for some kind of sequel to me. Like, it felt like it was just kind of a different book within the book. Right, right. That being said, I, I liked it. Well, it just, it wasn't totally plotted well. I'm with you in the sense that, or I almost think it was plotted too well in that this is where it's hard, where I'm coming down, like I'm actually kind of, like I don't not like this book. And a lot of my initial concerns, even like Tepid, which were one like you, like I don't like picaresque. I don't want an impressionistic series of like fun little adventures, Mm -hmm. you know, and a couple times it got to that point. And even like a linguistic way, a lot of these like random off-kilter conversations that Someone tells a story in the middle of dialogue, and you have 10 pages of that. Or I mean, pages. it's full of big monologues. It's full of those. But anyway, so it was doing that, and I thought, like, oh, I hate, I don't like, kind of like the poetry thing. My aversion to lists in poetry. You know, the poems about, like... like it's cheap. Or no, it's not cheap. I mean, I'm not trying to make a value judgment. Just that I don't like a poem that's about a really lyrical, imagistic vision of, like, the contents of a purse. Mm-hmm. With, like, a devastating final line. Like, I don't care. Can you tell me what that, can you write that I can write now? one of those right now. Yeah, what's want, it like? One. Or you want me to do it? Yeah. Okay. Um, sonnet or? Um, no, you don't even have to put meter in it. Okay. I just want to know, like, what contents of a purse would justify a poem? Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, listen, poets out there. Breathings, your poems need to, one, ask. Let me make sure I have your language right. Ask big questions and answer them. Hey, women, the content of your purse 
is not worth anyone's time. It's not important. Oh, so you're writing like a feminist poem. It has like a teacup and a tampon and what else is in the It's purse? got a D cup. <laughs> it's funny about boobs. We have a lot to talk about. I know. That's what I'm trying to get to my point. Okay. My point. What was I talking about? The picaresque thing. The thing that the book does is, is less than I thought like that ending was tacked on, but that he was so conscientious. It's almost admirable. So conscientious about tying up all of the loose ends felt like to me like a checklist. He uses one, I mean, I guess we can use it, we can say, the spoiler, early on Wednesday's telling Shadow about like how he used to be a grifter and con man in the 20s or 30s. And then you find out at the end that this whole old gods versus new gods battle isn't actually a con. A two-man con. A two-man con set up between him and Loki. And I had like written down the grifting scene, an indulgent example of a writing that I usually don't like. But it's so kind of ballsy because it pretends, or ovary-y. <laughs> I because, hate that. <laughs> I know, right? Because it, it depends on your reader wanting to go there with you. Like, of course I'll listen. Okay, so anyway. I so totally I, agree with you there. There is something about the writing like in that. this book that I usually wouldn't like. And it is some of that, like, monologue-driven Americana. This is, like, what we're looking through and we're going to tell grand stories about what we're doing that I really, I'm usually kind of repulsed by or something about me is like, eh, stop it, just calm down and like tell me this one story. Right, well regardless, of what I'm worked. saying is yeah. that those are there and I, and I was like, oh, you know, luckily I was kind of there for that because mm-hmm. like you could lose people with that easy. But the thing is, at the end he goes and ties every one of those up. He goes and says, no, no, this is who Samantha is, a random person he meets on the road. This is why those grifts work or are necessary. Mm-hmm. This is why his time in Lakeside was important. This is who that character he spent a lot of time with in Lakeside was important, the cop and Hinselman. Mm-hmm. It's weirdly picaresque, but like not because these are all connected. And yeah, I know what you mean. And in a way that like I didn't care. Like I didn't. So that's why I, I fall back. I, I admired the way that was set up, but still by the end felt so underwhelmed. Okay, so I mean, that's interesting. I was riveted by the vision quest all right so what goes on in the climax there's his vision quest on the tree in which on what he, tree i'm um, sorry odin dies wednesday dies and shadow holds his vigil which means for i think eight days he's tied up in a tree with no food or water and everyone says you're gonna die you're gonna die and he does die but then he is brought back just like odin or jesus etc in the midst of that are 30 pages of what's going on in his mind yes should I read a passage from that? Which, sure. when I read it, I thought, like, this is funny because on one hand, if you don't like the dream sequences, this Oof. is the height of, like, the fucking weird dream sequences. Yes. At the same time, I read it and thought, like, how delightful. And it makes sense because the God's in this book. Before I read the passage, I want to say that I love that when he's on the tree in so much pain, like, the mantra he keeps repeating is, it's easy, there's a trick to it, you do it or you die. It's easy, there's a trick to it, you do it or you die. The way that that's repeated is just dark and funny and true and great. So, okay, sorry. This is actually not my favorite book. Yes, it is. (laughs) Here's a little example of dream sequences. He's on the tree. The pain woke him several times in the next few hours. It pulled him from a dark dream in which dead children rose and came to him, their eyes peeling swollen pearls, and they reproached him for failing them. A spider edged across his face and he woke. He shook his head, dislodging or frightening it, and returned to his dreams. And now an elephant-headed man, pot-bellied, one tusk broken, was riding toward him on the back of a huge mouse. 
the elephant-headed man curled his trunk toward Shadow and said, If you had invoked me before you began this journey, perhaps some of your troubles might have been avoided. Then the elephant took the mouse, which had, by some means the Shadow could not perceive, become tiny while not changing size at all, and passed it from hand to hand, fingers curling about it as the little creature scampered from palm to palm, and Shadow was not at all surprised when the elephant-headed god finally opened all four of his hands to reveal them perfectly empty. He shrugged arm after arm after arm, in a peculiar fluid motion, and looked at Shadow, his face unreadable. It's in the trunk, Shadow told the elephant man. He had been watching as the flickering tail vanished. The elephant man nodded his huge head and said, Yes, in the trunk. You will forget many things. You will give many things away. You will lose many things, but do not lose this. And then the rain began, and Shadow was tumbled, shivering and wet from deep sleep into full wakefulness. I'm asleep. You're asleep and I'm there. Okay, so here's where... So he meets Ganesh in a dream. So what this makes me think is not that you're wrong or that... Like I said, I, I got really fed up with how long it was. I don't like long books. So this might be... We've essentially started this podcast because I don't like genre fiction, mm-hmm. right? And I've had trouble with it. And, you know, I've made some strides. But I think in potentially irreconcilable difference. So whatever was happening in those dream sequences are on... I just kind of skimmed all of the vision quest. I mean, but that's crazy. To, but that was... Because it's not just the dream, and it's not just that a, a real god obviously came to him in that dream. It was that it carried on the whole trope of Shadow loves coin tricks, and at the end it's a two-man con, and it's all about, like, keep your eye on the one true thing, because there are going to be a lot of illusions. And, like, his whole coin game thing works into that, too. Not to mention what Ganesh just says about... If we want to talk about what the book says about immigration, when he says you're going to lose a lot, you're going to lose a lot. Wow. Like, the book talks about immigration, Uh, and all the immigrants lose a lot. Well, I mean, we could talk about the themes that touch on, like, real world, which is... Well, let's talk about them. Well, first this. I mean, this is... My problem is that I eventually don't care about these fantastical images. So, like, when you're like, look, it's Ganesh. And in my head, I think it's an elephant talking to him. They're going to talk in really cryptic, vague language that I don't care about. I've already had 80 pages of dream sequences, which are cryptic language, that haven't been borne out yet. Like, I haven't got a payoff yet for what these mean. And I was paying attention to those. I think it is elusive. I don't think it's cryptic and vague. I think, like, a weird triumph of the book is that for how much, how many dreams there are, for how much kind of magic there is going on, it should be. But there's a real lucidity to the writing that really made carried me through the whole thing i agree there's a lucidity to the image making in like a poorly written type of book like this the dreams are kind of just chaos and and like Mm -hmm. and you're like oh god you can't even like put an image across here the images were always there i was sick of searching for whether this has meaning or not in the narrative of the book and maybe that's me being a lazy reader and like but i I didn't want to sustain that for 600 pages I i didn't have to search for it I, the, the meaning, I don't know. But he'd had, okay, so he'd had one dream sequence, extended one before that, before that, where he's crawling up out of the earth, creation myth style, and then he sees himself in a big, vast desert, and he crawls on top of a mountain of skulls and falls. I didn't love the Thunderbird dream. Yeah, it wasn't. But that's exactly favorite. it. Like, that was, that was six pages, and like, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting anything from this. It's also not relevant to how i mean what's what's the well it is the thunderbird thing comes into play we have illusions that he might have some native american ancestry thunderbird stuff is is a i guess a native american thing and that is who 
Easter calls that bird down. And again, just full of good details. When Easter calls that bird down, and he obviously hasn't been a man for like many years, he's been a bird for so long, that there, there's all that stuff about how she can tell that he's confused about being in a human body again. He's moving from foot to foot, and he's like trying to say something important, but he hasn't totally worked out how to be a human again. He's been a bird for so long. I mean, that stuff is just like good details. The whole thing just feels packed with details that are like rich and great. I mean, I struggle with this, and it's just because I guess we, people, different people have different interests. And I mean, his homework shows, you know, whether from the gods, which I don't know anything about, to, like, his obvious research on Middle America. Like, he's talking about UPs and pasties, which is the UP in Michigan, and they love pasties there. There was one point when someone was saying a throwaway line about Mithras, and they said, like, oh, he's an army brat. So that's, like, a fun, interesting detail that resonates for people like in the know. That's what those are there for. Like when people who know that Mithras was really popular with like Roman soldiers. But the way you're saying that, it's, it's like the fact that that would be interesting to that person makes it. No, no, no. I'm saying no. Here's what I here's what I struggle with in a book like this. What's the difference between liking a detail that speaks to you in that way and liking those kind of little touches and liking a novel? What I don't understand the question. I mean, I like that part because I knew that about Mithras, so I thought it was kind of, like, humorous. But what's that, I mean, is that... I mean, but there was so much stuff with the gods that in this book that I didn't know at all. Like, I still don't know who Cezernabog, I assume he's Russian, Cezernabog and Bilabog, I still don't know who they are. But I'm given enough information about them in the text that I can enjoy them in the story. I feel like I know who they are, and I still haven't Googled it. Yeah, if you do know stuff, like, because I know kind of a lot of mythology, and I was gratified by lots of pieces of the story that I knew, but there was so much of it that I had no idea about. Right. It still worked for me. I felt like there were a lot of just stretches that really dragged on for so long, and I was bored. Yeah, I, I think we just differ there. There was just a lot of richness to the imagery there, and I thought, like, the writing kept me there. What did you think of the writing? I obviously liked this book a lot. But I, it's not even that I thought that, like, the writing was great. I did think the writer did a lot of great things in terms of plotting, a lot of choices that he made, the details he included. And I thought the writing did have kind of, like, a lucidity, as I mentioned, and an elasticity. At the same time, he puts a lot of fucking big monologues in. And they're not all hitting for me. And some of them do feel, too, like, this is what America is, kids. Like, hokey... The speech from Sam about things she believes, while I think it really fits in with like the, the kind of thematic shit the book is dealing with, that speech became a little like an embarrassing spoken word poem. That's a good way to Should we it. read some of that? Yes. I, I think at the same time, the speech gets at some of like the good stuff about the book, but also at times it's just like, okay. I actually feel like it's, it's just doing him a disservice to read it because it's so anomalous, I thought. I kind of disagree with you that he gave people big, like, this is America speeches. I didn't see those in, in the dialogue. There are no other speeches like this where someone's sitting down and saying these grandiose statements. I think he was saying, trying to say a lot about America, but through the details. And, I mean, sometimes the gods would make... I mean, there were a lot of passages I liked, monologues. but that were kind of paragraphs about America. I mean, Cezernebog has a whole one when they're in the center of America, how it's like a, the opposite of sacred, how all of America has some of this. Should I read a little bit? And he's like, you think this. And she's like, you don't know what I believe. I can believe things that are true, and I can believe things that aren't true. And I can believe things where nobody knows if they're true or not. I can believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and Marilyn Monroe and the Beatles and Elvis and Mr. Ed. Listen, 
I believe that people are perfectible, that knowledge is infinite, that the world's run by secret banking cartels and is visited by aliens on a regular basis, nice ones that look like wrinkly lemurs and bad ones to mutilate cattle and want our water and our women. I believe that the future sucks and I believe that the future rocks. And I believe that one day white buffalo woman's going to come back and kick everyone's ass. I believe that all men are just overgrown boys with deep problems communicating and that the decline in good sex in America is coincident with the decline in drive-in movie theaters from state to state. I believe that all politicians are unprincipled crooks, and I still believe they're better than the alternative. I believe California is going to sink into the sea, while Florida is going to dissolve into madness and alligators and toxic waste. I believe that antibacterial soap is destroying our resistance to dirt and disease, so that one day we'll all be wiped out by the common cold like the Martians in War of the Worlds. I believe that the greatest poets of the last century were Edith Sitwell and Don Marquis, that jade is dried dragon sperm, and that thousands of years ago in a former life I was a one-armed Siberian shaman. It goes on like that for another page. Right. Uh, which is just, it actually feels completely anomalous to me. I don't know, no other speech. I mean, it just felt indulgent. Like, I felt like a lot of that is what he did want to say through a lot of the book, which is something that I liked, which is like, this is like a bold and brutal and full of <clears throat> contradictions. And these are like the many stories that are woven into this story, which are, we should talk about the vignettes, but I felt like yeah. he had done that so well, kind of like you said, although I do think there were other monologues, he had done that so well in other spaces that that speech felt like, kill it, like stop, like cut that. Right. I agree. I mean, we haven't talked about the new gods at all. I kind of did in the intro and uh, that might be, that might be the locus of the saying something about society place. I did not get anything human or emotional out of this about like actual, uh, with any sort of emotional resonance. You mean I was actually, with the new gods or with the book? With the book. I was actually unmoved by everything. I mean, okay. So oh, we have, I cried. We have the final big battle scene. It's at a mountain in the south. The new gods and old gods are like literally charging at each other fighting. And in my head, I mean, just, it's, it's maybe, it, this goes back to our own prejudices. I can't take that stuff seriously. I can't. In my head, when I was picturing it, it was a cartoon. It was claymation, birds flying at each other. The new gods are like crazy, like kids. And the old gods are cartoon superheroes. And it was, and none of it had any sort of import. I know what you're saying, and I think the book was aware of that too. Like, they didn't actually battle. It got almost to a battle, and then it stopped. But at the same time, I feel like that actual battle that he neutralizes was like the false climax. Never throughout the book did I think the story I was actually invested in and was going to be there through the climax was the new gods and the old gods fighting. I, the whole time, thought the story that I'm actually here for is Shadow, his relationship with his dead wife, his parentage, and his relationship to this new reality he's, he's realized throughout the world. That's interesting. Okay. Right, so I felt like that vision quest, that whole thing, when he gets through it, when he talks to Laura while he's hanging from a tree, which obviously has so many religious undertones anyway. That scene felt so heavy. And then when he chooses oblivion, like he can choose any afterlife he wants and he chooses nothing. And I felt like that was like the climax of the story. So I felt like the little spot where he chose oblivion was kind of good. But here's again why I can't. I mean, it goes so far and then stops short. Here's why I can't take it actually as religious allegory or any sort of religious import, seriously. Where's Jesus? They mentioned Jesus. Jesus has one mention, but in like a funny aside. Where it's someone... a great aside where they say like, 
they're like, ah, oh, fuck, like, Jesus, he's a lucky bastard. Like, he's done so well, but, you know, he's done well here, but I hear that he's, like, hitchhiking in Afghanistan. <laughs> right, but this whole thing is supposed to be dealing with gods in American folklore. Their power now is commensurate with their allegiance within humans. I mean, if anything, Jesus should be running shit. Jesus should be, like, the new god, the old god, the one who's puppet behind the scenes of the cabal like of all the gods and he's just not he's just not there why isn't he there this is american gods he is the american god but at the same time this is kind of where i go back to it with the picaresque thing you know i can't completely damn it because he is squaring those circles like i said he's trying to bring some sort of closure there and so with the jesus thing i don't know i felt like a hundred pages in and i knew kind of what what's going on here and like what he's doing and I actually felt like, oh, shit, if I was writing this book, I'd be kind of intimidated. Like, you've, you've bitten out a lot, off a lot. Like, you have some, not just like yeah, a lot I of agree. ground. Yeah, yeah, not just like a lot of ground to till, but you have some big, sensitive issues to deal with. And you have to decide whether you want to or not. And so, like, even like at page 100, I thought, okay, shit, he's got to deal with slavery. He's got to deal with uh, Native Americans. Genocide. He has to deal with... Christianity. He has to deal with Jesus. I thought like, okay, he's just going to have like a fun little thing where he's dealing with Odin, some other trickster gods and stuff and like leave them to side. That's a fun little book, right? But then I was again impressed. He he dealt with Native Americans and like explicitly big by the end. They're the best line is about all of that. Um, so good. That was good. When on his vision quest, he sees Whiskey Jack, who Whiskey oh, Jack is after the vision quest. Oh yeah, but Whiskey Jack says, I remember that. He says, I'm not a god, I'm a culture hero. Oh, not that part. I see we're okay. thinking about a different thing. I see what you're saying. No, it's right after it's all done. He's talking to he's talking to the elephant man or someone. Mm-hmm. And the elephant man knew all of this was going on, like the whole thing. So he's thinking like, oh, who are you? Who are you back in this whole big fight? Do you mean he's the like, buffalo no man? Yeah, the buffalo yeah, man. Yeah, he's talking to the man with the buffalo, he's, buffalo yes. head he sees throughout the book. Right, In right. dreams in a cave. Right. And he says, what god are you? And he says, I'm not a god. I'm, I'm the land. That was good. So good. Yeah, that was yeah. good. Anyway. So, again, yeah. So he brings in, he deals with slavery. And can we talk, that that vignette about mm-hmm. Mama Zuzu mm-hmm. was like, kind of like devastated me emotionally. <laughs> I mean, I was so there. We can talk about the vignette. I, you know I don't like short stories, but that one I was like, fuck, I'd be here just for that story. Yeah, I mean, okay. What'd so you he, think of it? I, I mean, I, we, do you want to talk about the vignettes? So <gasps> I, okay, okay. interspersed in this whole thing is a ton of maybe six or seven different little vignettes about, like, the way in which the gods, some of them, did end up in America. Like, ones about Vikings who gone astray, ended up here in the ninth century, whatever. Like, that's how Odin got here. Then and how great one, was that? How, like, they all died? It was good. Yeah. <laughs> then, like, I see you. You liked it. I liked the vignettes. I mean, I felt like there wasn't anything wonderful about them. Um, really? Because I thought the vignettes justified, like... The grand aims of the rest of the book. I thought well, this the book is, was okay. good, and I thought a lot of the, those vignettes were beautiful. I mean, we've kind of talked. I've had, I've told you my own thoughts about like when this is trying to say something about tangible things. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where maybe our ideas are. If it's saying anything, it's really elementary and pedestrian and uninteresting about America. Will capital you A. Describe that. Capital to A. Me? Capital M. Capital E. Oh, we're on something else right now, so we got to stick to that. Okay. Okay. So, Jesus, as my. So I, felt I was like, trying to distract you. Exactly. He has three things. I mean, there's three things. 
So he does deal with the Native American shit he in does. a way that's great, and I want to talk about that more. Right, and can you repeat that? The what? Native American shit. Right, your general attitude towards all things <laughs> Native American. No, I'm Okay, saying... then, like, then for Jesus to be completely absent. And he didn't even, it would have been easy to give like a one-sentence throwaway about like, oh, Jesus has like transcended all of us, obviously. He doesn't care. He's... I mean, I agree in that he did like American gods and he decided just to fucking leave Jesus out, (laughs) which is crazy. He is the American God. I agree, but I agree, but I allow it because he had so much else to do and he did so much else. But I agree that like, the other thing is like, I enjoyed this book so much that I wish he had included Jesus. I would love to have seen like what he would have done with it. Well, there's like a, a very nefarious figure amongst the new gods called Mr. World, who we find out at the end is actually Loki. But I thought, and I thought... Part of the two mankind. Exactly. I thought, like, oh, okay, like, this is... (laughs) I thought it was going to be a reveal, like, this is actually Jesus (laughs) running the shit, which I would have liked. That would have been neat. I was actually, I guess another thing I didn't like about the book, the new gods, I liked two of them as characters. I liked the fat kid, who I think was the internet. (laughs) And... Well, we can talk about the new gods. A huge fail in the book. Okay. A joke. It's a joke. In general, yes, the new gods are kind of a joke, but that being said... Because, like like you mentioned kind of in your introduction, like, technologies are always developing and they're always new and, like, they're not gods. And people are always into them. Yeah, so exactly. That being said, if we leave that aside with the fact that, like, I think the explanation of the new gods is convoluted, I don't think it works when you think about it. No. The fact that as the internet I thought was great, that moment where he remembers the first, like, four lines of the second coming... And then is like just starts muttering and throwing himself against a wall and can't remember the rest of it. Like that's funny. That's great. Also, I thought Media was great. When the Media is like a really attractive woman who gives like a really like hollow, exploitative speech at Odin's funeral, and then they like have this castaway that she like ate her own children. Like I thought like that was funny. So they I liked Media and I liked the fat kid. I didn't like the new guys in general, but I was so impressed with what he did. Credit with cards. The credit cards was bad. And what was? Actually, I couldn't figure this out. Like, when they had the big battle... Intangibles? No, no, no. Most of the new gods showed up, you know? But one of the new gods was, like, a, a weird thing with horns coming out of his face. Maybe it was, like, the railroad tracks. <laughs> I think those are old at this point. I know, but he was on the new god's side. Right. And, like, the internet was worried because maybe he's going to go the way of railroad. I mean, that shit was embarrassing. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. This is more, other than Samantha's speech, which was bad and also, to be nice, not the way most of the dialogue was. I actually have a lot of nice things to say about the writing with this. But anyway, this is him when he's talking to, I guess it'd be TV. Every now and then a TV will look at Shadow and start talking. How about Lucy? Are you going to read about Lucy? It's Lucy Ball. Yeah. Yeah, And it's saying, like, do you want to see my tits? How dark and great and weird and funny and disturbing is that? It's genuinely disturbing for me to think of Lucille Ball looking at me and saying, do you want to see my tits? It actually disturbs me. I mean, that was, okay, maybe it's hard for me. I just, maybe a different way in which, remember what was so annoying about like a a geeky kind of humor in The Martian? I felt like this was here but done better. Like I felt like I, I, I read that line and went like, oh. I mean, so he has a talk with Lucy and this is just very much, these things are bad talk. Lucille Ball, the TV starts talking to him, and Shadow says, who are you? And the TV says, good question. I'm the idiot box. I'm the TV. I'm the all-seeing eye in the world of the cathode ray. I'm the boob tube. I'm the little shrine the family gathers around to adore. 
Shadow says, you're the television or someone in the television? And she says, the TV's the altar. I'm what people are sacrificing to. What do they sacrifice? Asked Shadow. Their time, mostly, said Lucy. Sometimes each other. That's it. Okay, I agree. I, I agree. Mean, I agree. I agree. But the triumphs supersede those failures, which are minor. They do. I mean, you might be right. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when you think of all that he actually bit off. Okay, so the writing, if we're still on it. I think the writing was good. I mean, and I, I can't tell. There's a, there's a kind of, like, literary writing tick that I think and I've talked a ton about, which I still can't completely articulate, which is like an affected simplicity borne out through repetition of like yeah. the same word or something. And he does that in a way that's kind of jarring because like most genre writers don't. Mm-hmm. Like to say each detail. To say like each a detail. clear way. Right. And this sometimes... This is the kitchen. It's white. It's clean. Yes. It's, yes. yes. I know what you mean. And just like, you know, our subconscious says to us like literary fiction now because of you know obviously like the way things have gone so in that way it like is written well because it does that but also it does that in like a kind of smart way what's what's good is when you do that but do it in kind of an unexpected or smart way i like the one point at which we are we first meet bilquis who is the man consuming escort it's the queen of sheba actually through her vagina um, and you realize, you know, from the beginning that she's kind of interesting. Um, and then at one point, I just, this line I thought was great. The John says, is that good? Worship me, honey, says Bilquis, the hooker. I just thought that was great. Just adding the hooker is great. Because, like, we know she's not a hooker. Very winking. But, like, an example of that kind of, like, literary simplistic writing. He's, this is the vignette about the the West Africans coming to... As slaves to America. The slaves, yeah. Right, right. This is Mama Zuzu. This is Mama oh Zuzu. Oh my God, I could read this entire section. I was leveled by this section. For real, I felt like this wasn't that impressive. Anyway, oh. it says, she, Mama Zuzu, she saw that happen one day, and she'd seen it before, every day on the plantation, a beating, and she would see it many times again before she left. She saw it that one day, and it broke her heart. She had been beautiful for a while. Then the years of pain had taken their toll, and she was no longer beautiful. I mean, that kind of repetition of the word beautiful, very much that kind of writing. And he does it, so nominally this is, like, I thought it was well written. But anyway, uh, otherwise, I think he did tell the narrative, and especially in the beginning, I liked it. He told it in a kind of, the perspective was there, but off and interesting. And he had, like, a nice, strange progression between details in the story. There was, there was this one line, it was just this throwaway moment. I think it was after Shadow had decided to do the vigil. Where he said, um, like, Shadow felt like he had made a decision, something big and strange that he didn't understand. That's like a paraphrase. But that was, like, what I felt a lot of the book was to me. Like, I felt a sense of something big and strange and important happening. I didn't need it hammered out for me, but at the end, all the ends were tied. Yeah, all those tubes were tied by the end. I agree. No, I, I also thought he had a pretty nice description of an orgasm. Oh, can you read it to me? <laughs> it was just really the, the guy who was fucking Bilquis. You're taken with Bilquis, aren't you? I was taken well, with Okay, well, here's another problem. So, like, you get that first really... Bilquis is the first, like, non-shadow character we get, and it's just her having sex with a guy and then devouring her through... And it was, like, really ominous. And 
I thought she was going to be like, this is a big bad. This is a villain that we'll come back to later. Oh, I didn't think that at all. For real, that's that's the first... I mean, you had no... It's really so early. We haven't met any other gods. We don't know what's going on. I mean, I didn't really know much about this book before I started reading it, but I knew it was called American Gods, and by the time I got to that scene, I, I thought all the vignettes were going to be of different gods, which it didn't end up being. But when we started with that one with Bilquis and her vagina eating that man, I thought that I totally understood, like, this is a god, and we're seeing the way like the different old gods manifest their power. I agree, but I thought it was it was saying like here's our first scene with her. This one god will come back to a lot that will get more on this person. But that was just a scene of this god's life, and then later we get one other scene where she dies. A pretty good scene. And that scene where she died was great because I mean she was a prostitute, and it did actually like that scene made me feel sick and sad, and that scene like is the way that a lot of I think, like, street prostitutes ex- like experience violence, which right. is like she just picked up a bad guy. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I felt like that was, I mean, who am I? It's, it's not bad that he jumped around between the gods. Anyway, the orgasm there. You oh, know, yeah, read me the orgasm. I felt like I, felt like I didn't, you yeah, know. Like, Have you ever had an orgasm? I, I haven't. I hear it's one of the top ten best things about being a person. <laughs> so he's having sex with Bilquis. And then the pleasure crests into orgasm, blasting his mind into void his head and self and entire being a perfect blank as he thrusts deeper and deeper still. Eyes closed, spasming, he luxuriates in the moment, and then he feels a lurch, and it seems to him that he's hanging, head down, although the pleasure continues. You know what I mean for, like, a genre book? Like, I feel like I felt like I was in good prose hands at that point. That's, like, page 30. Yeah, I mean, I guess I thought I was in good prose hands i don't know male sexuality and female sexuality are so different does that moment describe an orgasm to me kind of did you relate more to the woman sucking the man up through her vagina 100 yes <laughs> but it's hard it's, maybe it's just my own actual problem with long books like I, I i start after page 300 it's careless but i think maybe that's how you read it like you said like you read it up against this deadline i read this book over weeks just like dipping into it at night on my bedstand. <laughs> Why are you standing on your bed, stand? It's called a bed stand, right? You were on it when you were reading it? Fuck you. No. And it was like a lovely place to be. And I do want to say about that Bilquis and Easter, who was my second favorite character. Yeah, we haven't talked about Easter. Who I love. She's just... To imagine, I imagined her as Southern. She talked about being in New Orleans a lot. <laughs> She's in San Francisco. Yeah, but she talked about she had been down there. And like we meet her, and she's in a park and she has a lot of Tupperware and she's drinking white wine out of a plastic cup and she talks about how she's gained some weight so when she walks she can feels her she can feel her thighs rub together and I was just like fuck yes Easter taken with her all her use of honey baby yeah I just loved her and I felt like all the women in this book really like I really think he wrote women well that being said like it was totally from a male gaze most of the women were incredibly sexual <laughs> Or, or if not sexual, then they were like, you know, postmenopausal and imbued with great <laughs> spiritual power. That's true. But that being said, I was, I was incredibly taken with them, and I felt like the fact that they were so much viewed from like this like straight male point of view was actually kind of authentic and great. And they were still allowed like a space in which he's not seeing them, and a space in which maybe they're more. I just he seemed to be attached to one of the first women he met for some reason. That like showed him the moon coin trick. I didn't understand why he was attached to her. That was weird. Yeah, um, he's a man who likes coin tricks, Scott. 
The coin tricks. Oh, God, I want to shoot myself. Okay, I like the coin tricks. I would understand if you thought there was too much going on in them. For me, I was like, yes, coin tricks. But we're taking way too long, and I do want to talk about Laura. Laura's his wife, who is brought back to life. All right, you're going to be a little surprised. Favorite character. Really? Yep. Oh, my God. I loved the whole, all of the Laura scenes. You did? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It worked for me. I liked that she was, you put it right, she was reanimated, but she wasn't alive. She was really confused about it, but still in like a really benevolent way. You could tell, so, spoiler, I mean, spoiler, we're way, we're like pretty long in here, if anyone's still listening, but Laura was a pretty faithful wife who he loved, Shadow loved, and she loved him, mm. but he'd been in jail for a couple of years, and she'd been cheating on him, but it seemed like, not like a emotional affair, like she wanted to fuck someone. Yeah, I thought the cheating was done well. Right, right. Yeah. And she was cheating on him when she died anyway, so he's upset about that. She... She was given an old BJ. She was given a blowjob during a car accident. Yeah. So everyone out there, lean back, release the jaw, take the penis out of your mouth. Have you ever given a blowjob while someone was driving? What? Does a big rig count? (laughs) (laughs) Blowjobs are crazy. More crazy? I actually, I think you've never given a blowjob, which is crazy. Me? Yeah. Why is that crazy? Because, like, it's such a, it's such an experience to give a blowjob. Like, I'm not saying it's revelatory, but it is a thing. Like, you've yeah. either given a blowjob or you haven't. <laughs> this is, you're actually 100% doing a Louis C.K. bit. I am? <laughs> yeah. Which one? The part where he says, like, you've given a blowjob or you haven't. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah. I was actually trying to trying to go up the Sex in the City Samantha bit when she says, like, they don't call it a job for no reason. <laughs> Pretty good. I love that show. Um, <laughs> so here's... Um, Blowjobs are crazy. I liked the Laura stuff. For one, great detail that they call each other in their baby talk way puppy. Oh, fuck that. No, I hated that. Loved what it. What are you talking about? Why is that a good detail? It's not like baby or something. I've never been in a relationship where I call someone puppy, but I could see that... What you liked that they did a pet name that you'd never heard. No, it was just like, it was a pet name that like rang emotionally true to me. What pet names do you use? Turtle Scale. Ew. But I'm saying, or whatever. I liked Puppy. Let me get to other things. I also really liked that I think part of like the bigger shit in the book Laura fit into, which is like, she died and he was in shock. And then he found out that she was blowing that guy when she died. And that compromised his idea of her. And I feel like there was the loss of her and there was the loss of the idea of her. And both of those were powerful. And I feel like a a large thing that the book is talking about is how powerful devotion is and you're devoted to an idea and even if that idea is compromised or if that thing doesn't exist that creates power and that's why all the gods exist so I felt like his reckoning with the fact that his idea of her is gone though she her physical self though she's different is reanimate is still there was like such an interesting way to deal with the whole grief loss of wife infidelity. I mean, all of that I just thought was great. And I was into it. Third thing about Laura I really liked, I loved how she was rotting. Mm, That when all of a sudden she would feel something big move inside of her and you knew there were maggots. I mean, it it was gross. It worked. I was there. I also loved how he still loved her even when she was dead and rotting and smelled bad. And he would still want to kiss her and like love her smile. That was nice. 
Remember when she got a job at a gas station in Jacksonville? In Jacksonville! <laughs> I'm from Jacksonville. I marked that down. <laughs> and, like, I'm not sure. I feel like maybe he's trying to say something mean about Jacksonville. That, like, the one place, like, a rotting body could go. <laughs> and not be job. noticed? <laughs> yeah. It was in, like, a gas station in Jacksonville. There you go. <laughs> Meth's a terrible thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but mostly I was just happy to be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I also, there was also a Xena reference in this book. There was a so Xena reference. I just, reference. like, I, I guess I love him. I forgot this, how much this dated itself. No, you're right. Yeah, those things. I just, I love that Laura was your favorite character, Scott. Like, yeah. it just. I mean, again, maybe if I'm thinking about this in terms of, like, a fan, like, that was so much easier to hang on to. It just seemed like a very clear, a genre thing, right? She's, the interaction wasn't freighted with this weird, cryptic, baggage about who are you who are you not what's a vision what's not that just got so tiresome no i know what you mean i mean i didn't think that other shit was tiresome but this was like a conversation and again this gets down to that like really clean bare language you were talking about but like this was a conversation between a man and his dead wife right right the whole section with loki um dying and like the end of that battle that didn't really work for me either so i agree with you kind of about that climax being an anti-climax it just that wasn't the climax of the book i was reading the climax was the scene in lakeside wisconsin because that was no my climax was the vision quest it's when he dies on the tree and your climax was literally a hundred pages before the book ended that's true i will give you so your climax is not what the book thought was the climax i don't know i disagree with you a little there i mean they're all like Climaxes packed the right book, together. If the book ended, I thought the thing when he the when he chose Oblivion, even if it didn't tie up, would you like it more? It, yes, I mean it wouldn't have tied up anything that it eventually did. Mm-hmm. I mean maybe if you would have got a sense, like if he would have had a part of his vision quest where he realized that Wednesday wasn't dead and that he was like conning people with Loki. And then just still chose Oblivion. I would have liked that so much more. Yeah, the going back to Wisconsin, I mean, I feel like that was just a placement issue. Like, like I liked the lakeside bit. It just should have been wrapped up earlier. What's this book saying about America? Like, capital A, capital M, capital E. It wants to say a lot about I can point to any number of passages where he's doing commentary on driving through the Midwest in the Rust Belt and pointing out abandoned factories shitty towns and i mean all the little which i liked like the little stops they make like rock city you know that place where the gods go i mean that's a real place which by the way i want to go to and weirdly while i was reading this book yeah there was a this girl on um facebook that i know whoa (laughs) i'm sorry put up a picture of of her like drinking wine in rock city and said this is my favorite place i see seven states or something but like she I asked her. Like, she hadn't read American Gods. It was just like, oh, like, people did, actually go to Rock City. Did you ask her to be on the podcast tonight? No. Should oh, we call shit, her? shit, consent. <laughs> it was implied consent because she was looking cute. Mm, exactly. It's a rape joke. <laughs> but anyway. So far, let's count them out. We have breeze dances on Native American. Okay, stop it, stop. Rape. Here's the thing. Uh, I thought all the, the Americana stuff really worked, like, in terms of details because it did seem like... Hollow and charming and oddly sinister in the way that I think, like, kitschy Americana stuff can seem. As for what it was saying about America, I mean, I think the most successful shit it said about that is the combination of all those vignettes. What all those vignettes are, uh, are stories of, like, terrible suffering and some kind of journey to get here. 
terrible suffering, some kind of journey to get here. There's a lot of potential and a lot of possibility, but there's also like a lot of failure, and no matter what happens, you lose a ton. And like, I think that's what it's saying about America, and I think that's interesting. That's one way to look at those. You can also look at it as like, even in the worst of circumstances, America, a place of reinvention. I mean, so it's not all suffering. It's all, it's kind of also buying into that, like America, a place of new beginnings. But of a very dark new beginning. Like right. Mama Zuzu is like, yeah, she is like an actual figure, you know, I think in like New right. Orleans shit. Right. But like, she talks so much about like seeing her little daughters raped and seeing right, her right. sons yeah, killed no. and all of that, that I feel like it is like, yeah, she does have a lot of spiritual power and that's born out of like a great deal of pain. And I feel like that's what a lot of the book is talking about. I agree though. I agree that whatever it is saying is in those vignettes. Although interestingly, I think what the book wants to be saying about America is not in the vignettes. I think he wants the vignettes to be interesting, fun little historical short stories. What he wants to say about America is in the dialogue and the description of middle so America. what do you think he wants to say about America? I don't actually I know, really, and I, don't, I, I felt so uninterested in it. I mean, I feel like he was kind of saying, like, all right, this is called, <laughs> this is called American Gods. He obviously oh, yeah, unless we, sorry, if we hadn't made this clear <laughs> He yet. obviously doesn't want to name it No Country for Old Men, but he references the Second Coming, and a lot of sailing to Byzantium is in this book, and, like, the, whatever, the whole Yates thing about, if you want to apply it to America, then, like, I think a lot of what he's saying is there, which is, like, this is a place of great power and great decline, and there is something ambiguous and horrible and really interesting about this place. Better put than I would have been able to. America, yay! This has dragged on way too long. We should wrap this up, right? I guess we should. How many queens of Shiva do you give this? Okay, I'll give it some queens of Shiva, but first of all, I want to talk just one moment, and this can go into my rating about the fact that I, I do think this book was actually trying to say things about like fiction in general, and maybe fantasy fiction, but about like the tension between the appearance and reality and truth and lies and all of that. And at the same time, I think it was sort of wonderful and winking. And here's this one passage I will read. Um, and this is right after Shadow dies on the vision quest. And the next chapter opens with, none of this can actually be happening. If it makes you more comfortable, you could simply think of it as a metaphor. Religions are by definition metaphors after all. God is a dream, a hope, a woman, an ironist, a father, a city, a house of many rooms, a watchmaker who left his prized chronometer in the desert, someone who loves you, even perhaps against all evidence, a celestial being whose only interest is to make sure your football team, army, business, or marriage thrives, prospers, and trump triumphs over all opposition. Religions are places to stand and look and act, vantage points from which to view the world. So none of this is happening. Such things could not occur. Never a word of it is literally true. Even so, the next thing that happened, happened like this. And it goes into it. And I really love whatever is in that passage, which is, to one extent, like, this book is trying to say big things. And it is actually going for it. It's about perspective. Like, religions are places to view the world. Be they the stories of these books or the stories of religion, etc., the fact of whether or not they happened is not important. You suspend your disbelief and you enter a story and you learn an actual truth from a lie. And I feel like that gets to fiction in general, and especially fantasy fiction, which won't even let you suspend your disbelief because it's not even giving you a natural world. It's giving you a world that cannot be real. And it's saying, believe this 
lie and will tell you something true. Ending that with, but the next thing that happened happened like this is so great. And harkens back again about his tying up ends to the very beginning of the book when he starts with this this uh, Ford saying like a lot of these places are real, a lot of them aren't. I haven't gotten permission for any of them to use their names. Um, but obviously all the characters in this are fictional, except the gods. The gods are real. And I feel like there's just like something funny and dark and great about that. So yeah, all in all, I have more to say about this book, but I have to wrap up because we've been talking for four hours. <laughs> I give this book an 8.9. You scared of the 9? Scared of the 9. Why? Just waiting for something else? Yeah, yeah, i got to leave room. That's, that's the best so far. It's the best so far. I mean, I feel like in an objective sense, this was the best book yeah, we've read yeah. so far. Yeah, okay, okay. I like it. 8.9. It, like, it should get a 9, but like, I wasn't, like, I know it sounds like it from this podcast, I wasn't dizzy in love with this book while I was right. reading it. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Right, right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. 8.9. What do you give it? How many hungry vaginas do you give this book? <laughs> I give, I try and at least have three during every day, but for this book... <laughs> I, I th okay, I think I need to preface my final score with the thought that, one, all of my points are subjective, and Bree's points are great, but you can't get away from yourself. So that colors the way I take in a lot of this. And so I'm actually really thankful for this book. I think it helped me solidify a lot of my feelings on genre. And a lot of those are, okay, so one, I'm still kind of a novice at this, I think. Like, it's just funny. Like, I read... A, a fledgling new to flight. Exactly. It's just, I mean, like, knowing we're reading a book called American Gods and that we're, like, doing a podcast about reading fantasy magic books, I'm still always taken aback. Or I never, I never expected them to be gods when they're gods. <laughs> like, it always catches me off guard when something crazy happens. This one guy came... Mad Sweeney came into the bar, and then they talk, and then he tells shadow that he's a leprechaun i'm like oh what oh okay and i didn't even like until someone called wednesday a tree hanger did i realize like oh he's odin anyway i mean so, just when you reference both of those i'm like oh my god those things are so good right right anyway so that's my own problem okay so what i think this has helped me realize is that a couple things maybe one about genre in general and then also about like the differentiation i don't think i like fantasy or i just have a hard time taking it seriously I can't, or like a very magical thing. What I think I want from a genre, and it's kind of hewing to how we like set it out in the first episode, what I think I want from a genre book is what I want from like an action movie or like a stupid sci-fi movie. I don't want them to swing for the fences with thematic issues. I want like a, a fun story about a thing that couldn't happen in the real world that I can escape into. Any point it's trying to make with a bigger issue about human emotions or the world is just not going to resonate with me. Or it's going to feel necessarily handicapped by the fact of, being take, of taking place in a different world. So that's why I felt like this can't say anything interesting about America. It just doesn't say anything interesting to me about America or the way in which grief operates. I liked Laura. Like, I loved hearing what you said about Laura. What I liked about Laura was that, like, she was like a funny zombie mm -hmm. who he acted with. Mm -hmm. Not that it was, like, a nice manifestation of grief. And, again, that's partially because Shadow was, like, a nothing to me. Look, it makes me sad what you're saying. It does make me sad. But at the same time, I mean, 
yeah, maybe, and I come back to how I feel about genre fiction a little bit here, which is actually, like, this is kind of a false distinction I make in my head for this podcast. Like, any book I read is just a book I read. Right, right. And, like, sometimes some of them have gods and crazy things, and some of them have totally made-up people who have never existed but who could be real. I don't know. Like, that shit works, the book works, or it doesn't. I, I see what you're saying, and I think that's a good point in that, like, I'm not trying to actualize a fiction book in the real world. Okay, so that's, like, me being, I guess, really ungenerous. The other thing is maybe... Yeah, that's, that's, I'm fucking downcast about what you just said. Well, it's not, it's not, it's actually nice. It's just, like, I'm, like, I don't know. Like, there needs to, like, be a book that's fun because it's about weird things. You know, that's why I like that line about Mithras. That's funny. Just other issue about my own issues with mythology. I'm not interested in mythology. I've never been into mythology. I don't know a lot about mythology from the get-go. It's going to speak much less to me. Mm-hmm. That at least tempers my earlier thought about fantasy because like, this is, isn't just a fantasy that I say couldn't work, but it's also dealing specifically in a genre that is not going to be very good for me. I'm going to give this a six. Jesus. I think you know that a six is low. I don't think so. What have I given more than a six to? A ton of stuff. <laughs> Some of them don't count. I mean, Dawn's better than this. No, I mean, I, th- I think this had more magic to it than Dawn did. And one's fantasy and one's sci-fi, but I think there were moments of this book where I really did feel like the world is a dark and wonderful place. I mean, again, this, is, this isn't such a bad thing. He bit off a sh- ton. Yeah. Goblin Emperor's better than this. I mean, I don't want to fucking compare, but you've given a lot of stuff better than a six. And I really think it's fucked up of you to give it a six. And I disagree with you as a person. (laughs) I just want to leave it with that. And I think you're wrong. Like, I don't even believe you. Like, I think you liked this book more than the six. I think it's unjust the way that you describe the book in that way. Like, oh, it's just 400 pages. He's climbing this skull mountain. I, actually, I I just, I think this book was put together really fucking well. And I think it was written well. It could have been 350 pages long. Sure, except that from someone who really enjoyed the book, like, I was happy just to be in it for that long. I didn't mind that there was something sloppy about the end. That's hard. I never, so, like, I'm never happy to be in a book. I mean, yeah, like, to some extent, you might be a miserable person. <laughs> want... That's what I'm getting from this. You take pleasure in nothing. <sighs> you can't ever enjoy being there for the ride. Like, they just tell a story with economy. Which he does, considering how much he's bitten off to chew. Anyway, yeah, you might be right. I, I don't know. So they're coming off the series? They're t- making this into a no way. TV series? No way. Yeah. Oh, I we didn't like even we didn't do our like casting. Well, there was, there's a lot we didn't do. Tom <laughs> Hardy is Shadow. Oh, ew, ew. Tom Hardy is Shadow. He's a tall Native American looking man. I think Tom Hardy has an ambiguous... It's Javier Bardem, obviously. Javier Bardem's pretty good. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> but then you actually did make him like no country for old men guy. And That's, I feel like he's actually put across as like things. a big, burly, kind of imposing, not attractive, but not unattractive looking kind of you know brusque. Movies can make people look taller, right? Actually, they can't. Do you know who Andy Serkis is? <laughs> Does he make people look taller? He's a, like a. A large field. <laughs> we need to stop. <laughs> it's going on way too long. Okay, we have to stop. I gave this book an 8.9. You gave it a 6. When I say it like that... I was that, about to say 5.5. I just want to tell you that your take on this book makes me dislike you. So we're wrapping up here. 
A little punch yeah. drunk. With either the longest podcast we've ever done or part two. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Of the podcast you're listening to. Scott, you let me down. I, I Do you have I any did. concluding remarks to say to me? I don't I don't know. I feel like I've let myself down. I know it's better than that, but like I just didn't I mean, what a dismal thing to say. That <laughs> whole thing you just said about not caring. I mean, I, just, I, I don't know. I recognize that he's doing this well, but I didn't care about any of the things he'd set up. It might be time to bring on a guest host. Oh. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, next book, I might need a guest host. I don't know if I can take this tone. That being said, um, so there it was. Another week with genre stop. Uh, we're glad you tuned in. You should read the book. And tell us what you think on our Facebook page, genrestopfacebook.com. We don't have a Facebook page. <laughs> so Instagram. Um, we have Instagram, genrestopinstagram.com. Or genrestop underscore fuckgram.com. Are you okay? I know. So, Scott, what are we reading next week? Now that you oh, fucking yeah. blew up our formula, everyone knows it's your pick. I think we're going to read American Gods again. To be honest, I have a whole I have a whole more two hours worth to say. Oh no. There's a lot we didn't talk about. So tune in next week when we read something and until I think we're then, gonna read uh, a book called Lagoon by Nettie Okorafor. Great times. Is it is it about Brooke Shields being topless <laughs> in Blue Lagoon? Yeah. How hot was she in Blue Lagoon Blue? I feel like she was in like another movie about New Orleans prostitutes when she was like literally 11. Wait, are you thinking of Jodie Foster? Oh, is that Jodie Foster? In Taxi Driver? No. No. <laughs> I haven't seen Who's many. That? I don't watch, I forgot, like New Orleans prostitution is porn? a big part of your porn. <laughs> no, the movie, I think it was her and Susan Sarandon. And Brooke Shields, like, like a little girl. Are you thinking of Dead Man Walking? No, what's that? Keep, keep naming it. Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I think there's a scene where Brooke, she, she Turn it off. <laughs> That's true.